Hello and welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. To mark the 50th episode of the show, I'm going to cover one of the biggest names in the history of surgery that I haven't covered yet, John Hunter. We'll be going back to one of the earliest periods in the modern era of surgery, 18th century London. The surgical world in which Hunter practiced had really just emerged from its origins as barber surgeons, and science was only beginning to play a role in surgery. In fact, it was Hunter himself who has been credited as the father of scientific surgery. Although it's an often used moniker, and surgery seems to have no end of so-called fathers, he truly earned this title by his impact on the specialty. We'll see just how influential he was in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Like always, we'll begin at the beginning, although there is a minor mystery there. John Hunter was born in February of 1728 on a farm at Long Calderwood, Lanarkshire, Scotland, near Glasgow, the youngest of ten children. During his life, his birthday was celebrated on February 14th, and I've read that there is a tradition of drinking to his memory at the Royal College of Surgeons in England on this day. However, according to the parish records, his birthday was in fact the 13th. One source suggested that he was born late in the night, and perhaps the midwife didn't know if the clock had struck midnight, leading to the confusion. In his early years, the legend is that he disliked school and hated books, preferring an outdoor life, showing an early interest in animals, which we'll see will play an influential role on his life. Hunter was said to be slow to learn how to read, and never outgrew his aversion to books. His own niece said, quote, He remained an idle, uneducated boy. He could not be taught to read but with the greatest difficulty, end quote. Yet really, Hunter was studying nature. A story about him from later in life, when he was an established surgeon, goes like this. An acquaintance asked him what books his son should read to be a learned man. So Hunter grabbed the man and pulled him into the dissecting room, pointed at a body and said, These are my books. Anyways, Hunter's father died in 1741 when John was just 13, so he dropped out of school and remained at home having no formal education during this time. At 17, he went to Glasgow to work for a few months with a brother-in-law who was a timber merchant and carpenter. But it was when he was nearly 21 that a visit to his older brother William in London, a successful obstetrician and physician, would dictate the direction of his life. By the time of John's visit, his brother had built up one of the most celebrated schools of anatomy in London in Covent Garden. Okay, let's go on a brief tangent here and talk about the state of surgical training and anatomical teaching in the 18th century. This will be one of our longer detours, but it'll be important to put things into context. When John Hunter was starting his career, he was entering a field with a shady reputation. Surgeons were regarded as uneducated tradesmen, and surgery was little more than a barbaric practice which was looked down upon by the well-paid and well-educated physicians of the day. The range of operations that could be offered was limited, mostly consisting of amputations, removal of stones from the bladder, or drilling holes in the skull to relieve pressure on the brain. Surgeons trained not by organized schools, but rather by apprenticeship, meaning students would follow an established surgeon around the hospital wards, and of note, attending privately owned anatomy schools. Imagine the lack of basic anatomical knowledge, anesthesia and aseptic technique, and the crude instruments available. It's little wonder that mortality rates were so high and the opinion of surgeons was so low. Since anyone could open an anatomy school, there was much competition for material. The main legitimate supply came from the gallows. Cadavers of the hanged would be used, and obtaining these required the permission of authorities. Often the condemned, the executioners, and their assistants all had to be bribed. Occasionally the body of a hanged criminal would be taken to the surgeon's hall in London to be publicly anatomized in order to serve as an example and act as a deterrent to crime. It's probably not a coincidence that the surgeon's hall was built near the Old Bailey next to Newgate Prison. Now, because of this scarcity of legally acquired corpses, body snatching in 18th century London was not an uncommon occurrence. Paupers, meaning the poor, 
were usually buried in communal graves, and so their bodies could be easily taken from their coffins. The surgeons' guilds and anatomy schools paid well, which led to the rise of gangs of so-called resurrectionists who stole bodies from mortuaries. You may be wondering, given the severe punishment for criminals at the time, how this could be a viable trade. Well, there was a peculiarity of English law which stated that since each man is the sole master of his body during life, that when a man dies nobody owned the dead corpse and therefore it was impossible to steal a body. And as they were no longer alive, they could not be kidnapped either. So as long as the resurrectionists didn't take anything else like clothes, jewelry, coffins, etc., they were only guilty of a misdemeanor punishable by a fine and imprisonment rather than a more serious crime like theft. The authorities may have even looked the other way, considering it a necessary evil. Body snatching became a contest between the snatchers and the families of the deceased trying to protect them. In fact, John Hunter himself was involved in a fairly famous episode of body snatching later in his life, but we'll come back to that. But before we leave the idea of body snatching, let me read you part of a poem by Tom Hood called Mary's Ghost. Quote, The body snatchers, they have come and made a snatch of me. It's very hard them kind of men won't let a body be. The arm that used to take your arm is gone to Dr. Vice, and both my legs are gone to walk the hospital at Guy's. I vowed that you should have my hand, but fate gave us denial. You'll find it there at Dr. Bell's, in spirits and a vial, end quote. It goes on from there, but that gives you an idea of how the real threat of body snatching affected the psyche of 18th century Londoners. So John Hunter entered the British capital at a time when schools of anatomy were private ventures, and it was necessary for the surgeon who owned and managed the school to illustrate their lectures with skillfully prepared specimens. His older brother William offered him work at the school and gave him the task of dissecting the muscles of an arm and then an arm in which the arteries had been injected. The results very much exceeded his brother's expectations, and though he started as William's assistant in dissections, John was soon running the practical classes on his own. During his years with his brother, his natural curiosity drove him to study function, and he used live animals for this purpose. And amongst other things, he studied the descent of the testis, the formation of pus, the placental circulation, and the function of the lymphatics. Now let's cover John Hunter's early training. Now he actually spent 11 winters studying anatomy in his brother's dissecting rooms and was probably present at the dissections of more than 2,000 human bodies. It was during this time that he was developing the experimental approach that would transform surgery from an art to a science. In the summers of 1749 and 1750, he learned surgery from William Cheseldon at Chelsea Hospital. After Cheseldon's retirement, Hunter became a surgeon's pupil at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, where Percival Pott was one of the senior surgeons. Pott is a fascinating character himself, credited with identifying chimney sweepers' carcinoma. I'll do a future podcast on him. In 1754, his brother William, identifying his talent, obtained him a place as a surgeon's pupil at St. George's Hospital where he gained most of his practical training, and by 1756 he was appointed house surgeon there. And this was about the extent of his education, which was somewhat of an embarrassment to his brother William. So much so that he persuaded John to enroll at Oxford University in June of 1755, but he left after less than two months, saying, quote, Why, they tried to make an old woman out of me. They wanted to stuff me with Greek and Latin at the university, but these schemes I cracked like so many vermin as they came before me, end quote. Hunter would never complete a course of studies at any university and never attempted to become a doctor of medicine, unlike his older brother William. In 1753, John Hunter was made Master of Anatomy at Surgeon's Hall, tasked with the duty of reading the lectures. He continued to work in his brother's anatomy school, but his health began to suffer and he developed some lung difficulties. Wanting a change of climate, Hunter signed on with the military and on October 30, 1760, was commissioned as an army surgeon by Robert Adair, Inspector General of Hospitals. 
Hunter became the staff surgeon with the expeditionary force that set sail from Portsmouth on March 29, 1761, sent to capture the French island of Belle-Isle near the mouth of the Loire River during the Seven Years' War. He and his colleagues were kept busy treating casualties for months after the island surrendered and gained much of the experience he later added to his book called, quote, A Treaty on the Blood, Inflammation, and Gunshot Wounds, end quote, which was published posthumously in 1794. His experience led him to make the important observation that gunshot wounds, left alone, frequently did better than those subjected to surgery, which fed into his growing appreciation of the body's innate ability to heal and to the benefits of a conservative approach to surgery. He came to reject the common practice at the time of dilation of gunshot wounds. The idea was to make the shot easier to remove, but because of the unsanitary conditions, this increased the risk of infection, and so Hunter only did this when it was necessary, such as when he had to remove bone fragments. John Hunter wound up spending about a year on the island, using his spare time to study the marine biology there. Most of the British forces were transferred to Portugal in 1762 to protect the country from possible invasion by France and Spain. John had his brother William help him with the authorities to get him sent with the force because he wanted to study the local animals. After the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1763, ending the Seven Years' War, Hunter returned to London. He had no hospital appointment, and his position in his brother's school of anatomy had been filled. He had his army pay of 10 shillings a day, and he set up as a London surgeon. Initially, his income was small, which he supplemented with teaching practical anatomy and operative surgery, and began to expand his collection of specimens. Around this time, he worked with a dentist, James Spence, conducting tooth transplants for at least five years, which led to his book, The Natural History of the Human Teeth, published in 1771. In 1765, Hunter purchased a leasehold on some land at Earl's Court, and that same year took a house in Golden Square. By 1768, his finances were improving, and he completed his house at Earl's Court. And it was on these large grounds that Hunter housed an extensive collection of animals, some of which he would prepare for studying animal anatomy. In fact, one article in a newspaper at the time described that many animals there were, quote, supposed to be hostile to each other, but in this new paradise, the greatest friendship prevails, end quote. This image may have inspired the literary character Dr. Doolittle. Hunter used his collection to teach his students comparative anatomy, so they would understand the increasing complexity of structures from the simplest organisms to the most highly developed mammals and functional anatomy, so they would appreciate the relationship of structure to function. He also used his collection of animals and specimens to carry out many of his experiments, which led to his title as the founder of scientific surgery. Let's talk about a few examples. Hunter was interested in the study of the growth of bones and came up with a fairly ingenious method to look at this. He drilled two holes a precise distance apart in the long bones of young chickens and pigs and placed lead shot in the holes to mark the sites. Later, the animals were killed and the bones re-examined. Hunter found that although the length of the bones had increased greatly, the distance between the lead shot had not, demonstrating that long bones grow by extension from the ends, or the growth plates, rather than by adding material to the entire length of bone. Now, much of his study of bone growth and healing would be put into practical use with his fracture patients. Another fascinating example of an experiment put to practical use involved the study of the antlers of the fallow deer. Hunter caught a young stag in London's Richmond Park and tied a thread around the external carotid artery, which is a large blood vessel in the neck. Initially, the growing antler became cold and pulseless, but within two weeks, the affected antler regained its warmth and pulse. Hunter then killed and dissected the deer, injecting dye into the vessel, which showed that the circulation to the antler had been restored not by reopening of the tied-off carotid vessel, which remained blocked by the thread, but rather by collateral vessels, meaning smaller blood vessels that had enlarged and essentially allowed the blood to go around the obstruction. Now, the best part of the story is how he turned this into practical use. 
1785, Hunter had a patient, a 45-year-old coachman, with a painful swelling behind his knee and a swollen leg and foot. Now, this was a popliteal aneurysm, which is a dilation of the large artery that feeds the lower leg and lies behind the knee. The typical treatment at the time was to amputate the leg or drain the swelling, both of which carry a very high risk of death. In fact, his mentor, Percival Potts, recommended amputation, but Hunter knew from his deer experiment that collateral blood vessels could maintain circulation after the main artery was cut off, so he figured that it should have the same results in humans. He exposed the artery and ligated or tied off just below the middle of the thigh in the area we now know as Hunter's Canal. Six months after the operation, the coachman was back driving his carriage. Now, although he died 15 months later from a fever, one of his next patients actually survived for 50 years after the operation. Hunter had paid out of his own pocket for the patient to recuperate in the countryside. Amazingly, the knees of both of these patients are still in the Hunterian collection, and we'll get to that later. This operation is considered his greatest contribution to operative surgery. Now, Hunter was not averse to experimenting on humans, too, and some believe even on himself. He hypothesized that two diseases could not simultaneously involve the same organ, and believed that syphilis and gonorrhea, which are two sexually transmitted diseases, were in fact symptoms of the same illness. The legend is that he used a lance that had been dipped in a lesion from a prostitute to puncture his own genitalia. Unfortunately, the prostitute suffered from both syphilis and gonorrhea, and so he developed both diseases. Part of the legend was that he had to delay his marriage for three years until his lesion healed. However, there really is no definite proof that he actually inoculated himself, and more likely had another subject that he experimented on. Hunter would write a book called A Treaty on the Venereal Disease, published in 1786, which puts forth this theory, and it would be 50 years before someone could prove that syphilis and gonorrhea were separate diseases. Right, now let's get back to the chronological story. Hunter became a fellow of the Royal Society, a scientific society founded in 1660, on February 5th of 1767, based on his description of the anatomy of the amphibious biped Siren Lacertina, an eel-like creature. On July 7, 1769, Hunter was successful in the examination for the diploma of the Company of Surgeons at the age of 40. The examination took place in the Theatre of Surgeons Hall. On December 9th of the same year, he was appointed to staff at St. George's Hospital. In 1776, he was appointed Surgeon Extraordinary to King George III. Now, interestingly, when the king's elephant died, Hunter performed the first recorded dissection of an elephant. In 1786, he was appointed deputy surgeon to the British Army. The next year, 1787, Hunter won the Copley Medal, the highest award of the Royal Society, for his three papers, quote, on the ovaria, on the identity of the dog, wolf, and jackal species, and on the anatomy of whales, end quote. In March of 1790, he made surgeon general by Prime Minister William Pitt, and helped to found the Royal Veterinary College in 1791, serving as vice president. That's quite the list of accomplishments for an uneducated Scotsman from the countryside. Now let's get back to a rather infamous part of Hunter's story, the one I'd mentioned earlier about body snatching. Charles Byrne was born in Ireland in 1761, and grew to such a height that he became known as the Irish Giant. While historical records suggest he was somewhere between 8 foot 2 and 4 inches tall, around 2.5 meters, the skeletal evidence shows him to be more like 7 foot 7 inches or 2.3 meters. Still, that's pretty tall. At the age of 21, Charles moved to England to make a living as the world's tallest man. This drew Hunter's attention, who wanted his skeleton after his death, and even tried to purchase his corpse in advance through an intermediary. 
Horrified, the Irish giant made arrangements to be buried at sea at the mouth of the River Thames in a lead coffin. Following his death, Hunter bribed the undertaker 500 pounds to fill the coffin with rocks at an overnight stop. The coffin went to sea and everyone assumed he'd been buried. That is, until three years later when the skeleton of an extremely tall man appeared in a new glass case in John Hunter's museum. In fact, it's still in the collection. Also of interest is the fact that Hunter never opened the skull, and so never found the evidence of the enlarged pituitary gland that caused his gigantism. It wasn't until 1909 when Harvey Cushing, see podcasts 42 and 43, was given permission to open the skull that the diagnosis of a pituitary tumor was made. Near the peak of his career, John Hunter was a leader in the field of surgery and a popular teacher. His days fell into a pattern, rising early in the day, typically at or before 6, dissecting until 9, his breakfast hour, receiving patients from half past 9 till 12, seeing outpatients and hospital patients until about 4, then dining. He'd then nap for an hour and spend the evening discussing interesting topics with friends or meetings of learned societies or writing notes upon his cases or subjects of research or updating his teaching notes with the latest scientific knowledge. He was blunt and outspoken, but a consummate clinician investigator whose experimental studies in a variety of different animals and patients led to novel, successful clinical procedures that he integrated into his own practice and became standard techniques. He had gained a reputation as a great teacher because of his insistence on scientific rigor and scholarship and had many famous students. The most famous of which was Edward Jenner, who became a close friend and would go on to develop the smallpox vaccine. Quick side note, the word vaccine comes from the Latin word vaca, meaning cow, as Jenner used cowpox infectious material to inoculate patients against smallpox. Jenner himself actually coined the term vaccine. And one of Hunter's most famous quotes comes from a discussion with Jenner, his favorite pupil. Quote, I think your solution is just, but why think? Why not try the experiment? End quote. In fact, it was Edward Jenner who first noticed that Hunter suffered from angina or chest pains, frequently brought on by emotional upsets. Hunter himself would say that his life was in the hands of any rascal who chose to annoy him. Jenner correctly predicted that this would cause his death. On October 16, 1793, Hunter had an argument at a meeting of the Board of Governors of St. George's Hospital over his support of two Scottish students wishing to train in surgery. Following the meeting, he left the room and turned to one of the physicians of the hospital, groaned, and collapsed. John Hunter had died at the age of 65. An autopsy performed by friends and colleagues showed significant disease in the coronary arteries as well as disease in the heart valves. He was buried on October 22nd at St. Martin in the Fields, having a modest funeral. On March 28th of 1859, he was reburied at Westminster Abbey. A memorial brass on the floor of the North Isle says, quote, The Royal College of Surgeons of England have placed this tablet over the grave of Hunter to record their admiration of his genius as a gifted interpreter of the divine power and wisdom at work in the laws of organic life, and their grateful veneration for his services to mankind as the founder of scientific surgery, end quote. John Hunter brought science to surgery and sought out the truth by experimentation and observation. Now, sadly, many of his writings are lost to us, as his brother-in-law, Sir Everard Holm, took them in 1812 and eventually burned them. Many think this was to hide his plagiarism, as these were likely the source of many of his own papers. However, his legacy lives on in the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons. This preserves his collection of anatomical specimens, which in 1783 included 5,000 wet preparations, 3,000 stuffed or dried animals, 1,200 fossils, nearly 1,000 skeletal specimens, and nearly 1,000 diseased organs. The collection was bought by Parliament 
1799 for 15,000 pounds and became the property of the Company of Surgeons, which would go on to become the Royal College of Surgeons. Although the collection was partially destroyed during the bombing of London on May 10, 1941 during World War II, much of it remains to be visited and studied today. John Hunter put the practice of surgery on a scientific foundation and laid the framework for 20th century developments. One of his students said, quote, Hunter did more than anyone to make us gentlemen, end quote. He had raised surgery to a place of honor, both in the profession of medicine and in society. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will be on the somewhat controversial figure of Dr. J. Marion Sims, sometimes referred to as the father of modern gynecology. His most famous contribution was developing a treatment for vesicovaginal fistulas, which is an abnormal connection between the bladder and the vagina typically formed after childbirth. Unfortunately, much of his work in this area was on slaves, and there is question about whether these patients were truly consented. But we'll get more into that in the next episode. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery. Or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.